Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs about clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. Last time I was sharing a post from my online clinics, one of the participants was talking about the changes she was seeing in her horse. We ended with the question, what do you do when your horse gives you a no answer to a request, but you really do need a yes answer response? I'll review quickly the post that was sent in to the online clinic, and then we'll start up again with Dominique's response. And this is one of the things that I think is really interesting, but sometimes there is an element of this needs to happen, which means I might make the same request again, even after a no answer, but I will have changed something to make a yes more likely change the way I asked, change the criterion to make a smaller loop, etc. And I thought that was a really interesting comment that's worth chewing on a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. when, you're, when your horse gives you a no, okay. but you really need a yes for... Uh, you ask again differently. Yes. So, th- so, that, so rather than just saying asking for it uh, again in the same way that you asked or insisting. You know, you may have said no, but you really have to do this. So she is finding ways to change the no into a yes. Yeah. So with your horses, can you think of, are there situations where you might, they might be giving you a no but how would you trans? How do you transform that into a yes? Well, the first example that comes to my mind is not with my horses, but with uh, my dog and uh, um, when I'm clipping her nails. Ah, okay. But, yeah, because sometimes she's she's very. Uh, I didn't start out knowing when I because she's now thirteen years old, um, and so when I started clipping her nails years ago I didn't know anything (laughs) um it's because of her that I I um I explored clicker training so um the way I started her was not good but so so sometimes very often if I go too quickly or for whatever reason she'll say no and so um but I don't stop the session because I want to you know I want to continue to I don't, first of all, I don't want to end on a no. So even if I'm not going to cut a nail, I'm not going to end it there because I want to stop the session on a yes. So usually what I'll do is I'll just uh, decrease my criteria. I'll just ask for less, but I'll still be touching her nails, you know, because I I have all these, there's so much, so many things you can do with the nail. Um, And there's a big difference, of course, when, you know, just to, to, to give ideas, but you can touch the nail with your fingers. You can touch it for a very small, for a very small duration, for a long duration. You can hold it while you put the clipper on you. Cause I can, you know, I can take the clipper to the nails 
um, and stay there for, I don't know, many seconds and she won't budge. You know, she's, she's so used to all these different ways we can, all these different things, 101 things you can do with nails. I've done yes. that. You know, I've used a pencil on the nail, nail filer on the nail, long duration, small duration, holding the nail and putting the clip um, on the nail and not clipping. So, I mean, there's so many things you can do with the nail. Um, and so I'll end on a yes while, because I'll just go back. So I, maybe I'll decrease duration. Maybe I'll use another object because she's very, she's always willing to have a pencil touch her nail. She knows very well the difference between the pencil, the clip. She knows that the um, possibility of having the nail actually clip increases with duration. She's very aware of this. She yeah. knows that a, a quick touch is pretty safe, uh, but a longer touch is because I'm really gauging if I'm in the right proper orientation to cut, you know? So she's more wary of a longer duration when the clipper is actually touching the nail. <laughs> but so, um, so that's usually what I'll do. You know, I'll just, I'll stay in the session. I'll still do nail, what I call playing nails but I won't be actually clipping because she said to me that today she's not really into clipping the nails, but we're still playing nails. Right. Is what I would do to, to get a yes. And I know how to get a yes with the nails. It's pretty clear to me how I can do that. And because, you know, when I do husbandry, I always think of Ken who said for the one real injection, you have to do a hundred yes. false injection. That's what I do with nails. I touch her nails every day, you know, and I play with nails all the time because when I want to cut it, after that, I want, in French, we have an expression. We say we drown, you drown the, the fish. It's kind of, you know, at the end of it, you've done so much stuff and then whoops, you clipped and then you've done so much other stuff that it's yeah. like, what? what, what really happened? You know, I'm not too sure. So. Yeah, so that's what I would do as a dog example. What about you? So, so I think there's a, a really important piece in there. And this, this relates very much to what we were just talking about in terms of the conditions under which a behavior occurs. So if the only time that you ever ride your horse is on the sunny day when it's 70 degrees and there isn't a puff of a breeze, then that's a very narrow stimulus class mm -hmm. and you're going to be in trouble. Mm. But if you ride your horse on days when it's cloudy, sunny, overcast, uh, a little drizzly, uh, a little cooler, a little warmer, then pretty soon the stimulus class is expanded mm -hmm. and you're riding on more and more days. If the only time that you ever handle her nails is when you are going to clip them. Mm -hmm. you, you have a very narrow band uh, of behaviors uh, that you can work with. And if she says, no, you're stuck. That's right. You're stuck. But mm -hmm. if you have a wide band of behaviors that you do with nails, you can easily shift to yeah. something else. So you can shift seamlessly 
to something else. Yeah. And and, that's... Yeah, and and usually what will happen is this. So I'll get a no, I'll get a no, and I'll get a maybe, maybe, yes, 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 then I'll probably yet. Yeah. That's, you know, in a session, it would look like that. So, so I might, the session might have started with a yes, she might have been okay. And then all of a sudden, she said, no, I don't, because she's old to us. She has arthritis. She has pain in her legs. And then so um, there are many things, you know, encapsulated here, but still it's a yes or it's a no, or it's a maybe, and I work with it and it changes, you know? So I never quite know. Um, and sometimes maybe it's my, I'm being a little bit too, in a, too much in a hurry. Um, and she'll tell me you're rushing me <laughs> and just yeah. back off, you know, not yeah. ready for this right now. I'm hurting or whatever, but you're right. It's true that, you know, I have all this repertoire of, of behaviors and things that she can do that I can do because there's also put your paw in my hand, yeah. you know, that's because it's not just, um, it was interesting the other day. Uh, I read something in Mary Hunter's blog where she said, are you, when you're shaping husbandry behaviors, are, are you clicking your animal's behavior or your own behavior? Yes. And that's very interesting because sometimes I realize that I'm clicking my behavior and that maybe the way the dog is reacting is not optimal and I'm still clicking it because I touched the nail but that's not the issue. The issue is not for me. Well, I mean, the, the, the point is for the dog to be relaxed when I'm touching the nail, not just for me to do a hit and go. Oh, clickable moment. I touched the nail. Well, yeah. maybe it wasn't really a very clickable moment. Yeah. So putting your hand, your paw in my hand is part of that nail game that I play with her because that says to me a lot, you know, because sometimes what she'll do, the way she'll say yes, is that she'll actually retract her. So she's lying down and she'll just hide her little paw, you know, her paw. So that's yeah. a big no. It's like, no, I don't even want my paw near your hand. And so when I say I get a maybe is when the paw's coming back out, you know, that yeah. means, okay, maybe, so there's all these little subtle, and probably someone who didn't clicker train or knew about husbandry training would look at me and wonder, what are you doing spending all this time, you know, in and out and touching and the pencil on the nail? <laughs> but it's actually the only way. Because if I just clipped her nail, I would get consistent no's. For sure. Yeah. yeah. No doubt. Because then, it's part of a game and I'm drawing the fish, you know, and it's just, it's, it's okay. She's always willing. She will never not come when I say, and I show her the clipper. That's how I tell her we're playing the nail game. I'm showing her the clipper. She knows exactly what I'm going to do. And she still comes. She's never not come because I will honor the no. When she pulls her paw back, that's a no, and I'm not going to go grab the paw ever. I will never do that. Right. And systematically, I will always end on a yes. Like I said, it's not, maybe someone would say, well, that's not very efficient. You know, you spend five minutes on your knees on the floor and you cut only one nail. 
But for me, it's money in the bank. Yes. You know, I know that next time around, I'm going to be able to cut another nail. And yeah, so sometimes my vet says, well, it's kind of funny because all the nails are not equally cut. <laughs> and I say, no, because it takes a long time for me to get to all four paws. But you can get to all four paws. And if you yeah, had gone in. Think, yeah, but I'm sure if I had a new dog, you know, it would be completely different because yes. I messed up when I started with her. I completely messed up. So I'm kind of managing all the damage I've done and I'm still, you know, being able, and, and she's super, even the vet, they, they don't cut her nails because she's really quite sensitive. You know, one day I asked them to cut her nails and I said, cut what you can. And I was in the waiting room. It was the pandemic. And so we weren't allowed. And I heard her scream. And, and then they, she came right out and they said, we, we kind of, she, she didn't want us to cut more. So we stopped. And I say, yeah, I heard her scream. It was really <laughs> for you to stop. But so she's quite, you know, she's a challenge. But still, even if she's that much of a challenge, I'm still cutting her nails, you know, which I think is pretty cool. So in the, when you have a behavior that is one of those, it must get done behaviors. Yeah. Well, nails are in that category. Nails are in that category. Then this is one really important strategy to keep in mind is that you expand out so that you are playing 101 things that I can, can do so that you have ways of shifting seamlessly away from a no into mm. a yes. Mm -hmm. Because if you had been less sensitive to her, you would now have a dog who probably had to be tranquilized in order to have her nails done. Exactly. And because she's an older dog, that's not a good thing to be tranquilized or to be held and forced by a groomer to have her nails done, especially given the, the, the physical, the arthritis and so on in her joints. So this way, you have this lovely interaction with her and you have a way of shifting the nose into a yes. So I would think that people, if you're, as you listen to this and you think, what are the behaviors that I have that maybe my horse is hesitant about, reluctant about, and whether it's because uh, a lot of the crossover horses sit in this category, and how do I create around that particular task, the 101 things that uh, we can do together so that I can keep this manageable and get the task done, maybe not really fast and efficiently, but yeah. in the same way that Ken, uh, with his handlers, with the marine mammals, they were every day doing the husbandry tasks of um, where the, the whales and so on were exposed to components of a blood draw. So that on the day that they needed to draw blood, they had a cooperative whale. Yeah, and you know, I, I've always thought, I don't ever want the clippers to become a poison cube. Hmm. And so in order for that not, because there's always, I can see it in her eye that there's always a little bit of that uncertainty. Yeah. Know that because she, when I do cut, she doesn't like it. It's not something that she's, you know, very um, 
indifferent to. She's definitely not. When every time I cut a nail, I withdraw from the bank account. It's very clear. Mm -hmm. But she won't go away. She will not stand up and go away. But she doesn't like it. She will. She will. Once it's cut, she will withdraw a little paw. But and and that's why I never want to finish there. I always continue after that so that it ends on a good note. But the overall, you know that. Yeah, once in a while, you won't like it. It won't be fun. But overall, because we play 99 other times and you kind of like it. And I guess one of the advantage I find we have with the dogs that we don't have as much uh, with the horses. Maybe we do. Maybe I haven't been creative enough. But I find that, you know, I don't do, because Canel, I will train her with Canel, uh, uh, what do you have to say in English? Just her kibbles. She, she, she loves training so much, you know, she, she'll train for a dry, boring kibble and she's really happy to do it. I wouldn't be able to cut her nails with kibbles. Oh. When I do kibbles, I take out the meat, the real fresh meat. And it makes a difference. So I always feel I'm coercing her because I'm using meat, you know, that it's like, well, if you want the meat, I remember when we had that discussion with Susan Friedman once during a webinar where she said, if you really want to give your animal choice, well, you would have to give her the meat when they say no. That would be real choice. But so in a way, I am coercing her with the meat, but it's better than forcing her right. and grabbing her paw. Like Susan said, it's a continuum and you know, you're playing on this continuum be between you know, forceful and choice, but sometimes, yeah, you are using a little bit of coercion, but you know, I'd rather coerce my dog with meat than with a <laughs> choke collar. Yes, say. yes. Yeah. I'm well, more comfortable doing that. But we, I don't feel we have that hierarchy of reinforcement as much, you know, that really appetizing reinforcer you I mean I guess you know you have the hay pellets and you have alfalfa the carrots are better than just for some I know my horses really like carrots um so we we have some you know variety in the the value of reinforcer but I don't feel it's like giving confit de canard to my when I give duck confit to Canel, she's really willing to do quite a lot yeah, with the horses, it, at least with mine, hay stretcher pellets seem to do the job no matter what the job is. Okay. Why do you think that is? Why? Because I think a good trainer should be able to train without relying too much on value of reinforcement. But I feel when I'm doing the nail cutting, I'm not there yet. So I, I do use more value reinforcer. <laughs> I think that would be interesting to test to see whether that is... Uh, developed as a superstitious expectation on the part of the handler so that because if meaning Ooh, meaning if well no but meaning so I'm, me I'm thinking to, hard for me to accept this hypothesis I'm thinking back to a video that Ken shows mm -hmm. of his his dog when he was he was videotaping and demonstrating conditioned reinforcers so okay. he taught the dog he, he's linking uh, clapping uh, with uh, the giving of a treat. Mm -hmm. And so he could reinforce certain behaviors within a 
with it, it's much more complicated than this, but basically there were some behaviors he could reinforce with a clap. And and the dog was happy, and within the, the sequence, uh, everything was good. And he could also reinforce behaviors with toys. So mm -hmm. the dog was really happy to work for for toys as well. So she liked to chase after a toy and have a, get a squeak toy or things of that sort. So there, And he demonstrated on the video that this dog could be reinforced with toys. And then he brought out the clippers and he clicked and reinforced with the toy and the dog was done. It's like, no, I expect to be paid with food. Yeah. And so I, I, you wonder what expectations we set up that create that expectation. So that I'm sure that this does play a role at times. That it's sort of if if you are expecting a paycheck and somebody gives you a bouquet of flowers, mm -hmm. the flowers are very nice, but it's not what you expect. So depending upon what I normal what I expect as a reinforcer. I could be in one context delighted by the flowers and in another context it's like that's no <laughs> that's not sufficient unto the cause yeah. and it could be it could be even the same basic task or it could be something that requires a comparable amount of energy but the context to set up a different expectation so I wonder if and I don't have dogs, so I'm, I'm just speculating here. Canel mm -hmm. can tell me I'm totally wrong. I, I will accept that. But I just wonder if our expectation begins to create these associations that this is hard. Let me get a higher value treat. And then we start to set up that expectation of when the clippers come out, it's going to be the the high value treat and none of this kibble or I'm not playing. Mm. <laughs> so we'd have to test it. Yeah, I mean, we'd have to test it. And with um, with with her, it's too, it's probably too late that she would say it's no. she's conditioned for sure. Yeah. And I mean, as always, it's a study of one because I've certainly heard of trainers who had trained a lot with food and all of a sudden got a puppy who was totally uninterested in food and had to train it as a reinforcer. Right. I mean, I've, I've heard that, you know, yeah. often. So that is also part of it. But where, where, where were we going with all that? Oh, well, yes, you were reading. So, yeah, so she was coming for a yes. She was uh, training for a yes, asking a second time uh, to get a yes. Yeah. And then changing the the criteria, and then she went right. on. So with with this with her this first horse, all of these behaviors that she's talking about have been trained with positive reinforcement. That he had ha had not had a lot of training prior to coming to her. So these were behaviors that she had built up using positive reinforcement. She also has an older horse who came at the same time, but he's had more handling, more experience. 
And so she says, because he already knew his basics when he came to us, and because my other horse knew so little, I just piggybacked the uh, positive reinforcement onto what my second horse already knew. So I didn't go through a specific teaching process for everything. When he offered a behavior in full form, I basically captured it as is. And I think this has meant that he hasn't gotten the same benefits. And I thought that was really interesting and was worth chewing on some more. And she says, for one thing, we can't use the behaviors that were taught aversively. We can't use them as reinforcers very effectively. Mm -hmm. So it also limits the training. And then not knowing how the behaviors were taught means that uh, she doesn't have any steps to retrace and clean them up. And, and so I thought there was some interesting things to chew on in that, that um, this idea of using positive reinforcement as a piggybacking tool is something I don't think we've talked about very much, but it's certainly... Uh, I've certainly written about it, and, I, and I've certainly used it as a, as a piggyback tool. So that means that when you have a, a crossover horse, and you're a crossover trainer, we'll talk about the crossover trainers, mm-hmm. especially if, you, if you're an experienced horse person, you don't want to feel as though you have to throw everything out yeah. and start over from scratch when you when you start training Mm -hmm. and you have to build bridges. So if I ask my horse to back up and I'm basically asking my horse to back up in the way that I would, that I know from previous Mm -hmm. handling. And as my horse responds, I click and I give him a treat. I would say that you're piggybacking the positive reinforcement onto previous training. And the way I've always talked about that is that I would rather swallow a sugar-coated pill than the bitter pill. So, you know, so rather than saying, all right, I'm going to use um, negative reinforcement, I'm going to use an escalating pressure type of format, I, I slide up the lead and my horse responds to me, I'm going to click and reinforce him. And so my horse gets that clear information that, you know, he's, a, he's we could say it in blunt terms, he's avoided uh, the escalating pressure. It's information that tells him he has avoided uh, an unpleasant situation and he's getting a goodie. And this is sort of that, you know, are we sitting in poison cue territory or not? But it's often the bridge. It's a way of, for handlers, who are skilled horse people mm-hmm. to begin to enter the positive reinforcement world. That being able to use skills that they have and to begin to incorporate the positive reinforcement is often the way that people begin. You know, I wonder if you could make just a little change in something to signal to the animal that this is a new era. Some of the gestures may be the same, but, you know, 
when Jesus was saying, if you want to reteach dewarming or, or if you want, I think, to, to, to make the arena okay again for a horse that had spooked in the arena, put a piñata <laughs> at the ceiling, change a little something just to indicate that this is not the same. I don't know. Well, we change, we change a lot of things because I mean, one of the reasons for the setup of the foundation lessons, having it set up with protective contact, that's a huge change. Mm-hmm. You know, when you start, uh, you've got the horse in the stall with a stall guard across the, the door and you're training over that stall guard or you're working in a paddock, but you're on one side of the fence and he's on the other. That's a huge change in the environment. And when you're offering a target to touch, that's a huge change in the environment because probably those horses have never had any targeting done. And then you're wearing a treat pouch. So that's a huge indicator. I remember um, this video that uh, Jesus showed us where a man is uh, holding by leash a dog. I don't remember the breed, but some think it was a scary breed, but I'm not sure. And when people come into the living room, everything is fine. But then he gives the leash to a woman. He leaves the room and whenever someone comes in and she is holding the leash, all hell breaks yeah, loose. Yeah. You remember that? I do remember so that. There's a big difference for the dog, whether she or he is holding yes. the leash. And you know, I remember it, uh, we discussed once too, and I think it was in the same webinar, the Cues in Context uh, webinar, where he talked about, and we've all seen this, dogs who know the difference between people who give treats and people who don't give treats. Yes. They know very well the difference. And well, the behavior happens only for people who give treats. <laughs> And there's no behavior happening for people who don't give to, and they know the difference. So they can, I think they can differentiate. Uh, you know, my a friend of mine, I've talked about this friend who has a German shepherd. I've asked him, you know, can, do you mind if I train the dog with food? Because he's a tradition, more of a traditional. And I said, you know, I really believe that she can make the difference when she walks with me. I just walk on a loose leash. Um, and I don't think it's going to, well, for him, mess up <laughs> this yeah. training. Um, and it hasn't. You know, when she's with him, he's correcting with the leash. And when she's with me, we're on a loose leash. I mean, I find it quite amazing that she can adapt yes. to both types of training, but she is. Yeah. And certainly in the boarding barn situations, uh, my horses figured out really quickly that there were lots of humans who were just uh, not very trainable from their point of view, meaning they, 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 they were not clicker trainers. And they coped, they got, they, they managed, they were fine. They weren't being asked to do very much. It was just basic. Uh, or, you know, they can predict, they can predict the humans who deliver aversive Versus humans who deliver positive reinforcement. They can, there's predictors to that, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, they know the signs when the, I guess, the voice starts to increase or the, I mean, I'm sure there are a zillion things a horse can 
discern that will indicate that, ooh, this is an aversive giver, not a, not a carrot giver. Yeah. And I, I thought it was interesting that she's noticing this difference between the two horses. That the one horse who's had all of the, you know, it's like the same list of behaviors, but in one they've been taught with the positive reinforcement using the loopy training process. So you've mm -hmm. got all of this thin slicing that's occurred in the building of these behaviors. You've built the components and that she can use those behaviors as reinforcers in longer sequences. Yeah. And if the behavior falls apart a little bit, that she's got a way of tracing her steps back to rebuild the behavior. And in the second horse, that she's relied on piggybacking the positive reinforcement onto things he already knew. And we certainly, when you have, uh, it's very common, you get a new horse, you, it's a mature horse, he's been handled by people, there's lots of stuff that he knows, in quotes. And it's very tempting to just go ahead and say, oh, well, you know how to pick up your feet. Great. You know, I don't need to worry about that. You know how to stand while I put a saddle on. I don't need to do anything about that. You know, you know this long list of things and they're, they're, they're adequate. They're fine. But there's a lot of emotional baggage attached. Yeah. And when you, when you see you know, like this comment that she makes, that the behaviors that were taught aversively, mm -hmm. that she can't use them, yeah. very effectively as reinforcers. Well, it makes total sense. Absolutely. And, yeah. and that that creates a limitation in the training. Mm -hmm. And so it's a, it's a great statement for why we want, even when the horse, in quotes, knows how to do something, mm -hmm. that it's so worth unpacking that and mm -hmm. saying, well, yes, I can get your toenails clipped dog or I can clean out your feet horse but let me train it let me train it as a new fresh behavior let me teach it in a slightly different way from the way that you would have originally been taught I wonder you know if I could do that because I for sure you know I'm always thinking oh if I had a new dog you know it would be so different because there would never it they would I'm supposing that they, I would be able to, maybe I, I'm too hopeful, but I would be able to have them like being, having their nails clipped. Maybe I'm too optimistic, but, um, but with Canel, I feel like I said before, I'm still kind of, you know, because I messed up, I'm still carrying that. And yeah. I, I, I've done pretty good, but I don't, I cannot undo that history, I feel. Right. You know. And and there is a big difference between the young horses who have grown up in a world of positive reinforcement and horses that have on the expression been around the block a bit. Mm. There there is a, a difference, which does not mean that a cro crossover horses cannot exhibit an enormous amount of joy. Of course, because they can discern the, the difference between you and their previous trainers. Yeah. So there's certainly hope. 
but maybe it's not exactly the same like she's experiencing between horse one and horse two. Doesn't mean she won't have a wonderful relationship with horse number two and she can do quite a lot, but there's still, it's still there. They don't forget. What she is seeing now is the value in going with the second horse of going through the detailed teaching process so that rather than just relying on his previous training and saying, okay, you know, I can pick up your feet, it's good enough. So that it's worth going through this, uh, the teaching process that she's gone through with her first horse to teach him to pick up his feet because he, he has uh, some uh, physical issues behind. And so she's, she had to go through quite a, an extensive training program with him so he could learn how to find his balance and become comfortable having a, his, his feet picked up. And that it's, she, I think, now is seeing the real value in going through a similar teaching process for the older horse, even though he, in quotes, knows how to, you know, stand there and pick up his feet. But he's, it's, he's clearly at times not really comfortable, but his previous training has taught him that it doesn't matter what, what you want, you just have to, as best you can, do what you're told to stay out of trouble. Mm -hmm. And rather than live with that, She's seen the value of going through uh, training these behaviors so he understands that he has more choice, more options, which I think is really lovely. Mm. It's really lovely. You know what she's done different to, to reteach the, um, the picking the feet? Yeah. So norm normally when you pick up feet, the way that, that many people do it is you mm -hmm. run your hand down the horse's leg and you feel the horse shift his weight over. Yeah. And that's normally how it's taught. My favorite, and, and we've talked about this in the podcast before, my favorite way of teaching the horses to pick up their feet is to start, and you, you're starting off with a tactile, and, and it's a negative reinforcement, but it's not escalating pressure. You're, you're putting your hands on either side of the horse's elbow so you can feel the muscle, but you're not squeezing, you're not poking mm -hmm. in a way that's painful or unpleasant. You're just there feeling. And when right. you feel the horse lift, even, even if you imagine you think the horse is lifting, you click and you take your, your hands away. And you will feel the lift because when the horse breathes, the, there will be a change in the rib cage. And you can feel that at that point. So you start to feel the, this lift and you give the horse a treat, you put your hands back and pretty soon what you will feel is the shoulder blade lifting up. If the shoulder blade lifts up, the foot is, the leg is unweighting. And as the shoulder blade lifts up, then the knee will soften and start to come forward. And so you cue at the shoulder, the horse lifts his shoulder, his knee starts to come forward, and then you do body part targeting for the knee. So you, you take your hand down to the horse's knee, you click as your hand makes contact with the knee. So you cue at the shoulder, the horse softens his knee, your hand goes to the knee, it's body part targeting the, when the horse feels 
your hand on his knee, he gets clicked and reinforced, and then you begin to hover just shy of the horse's knee, and he brings his knee to your hand, and now you're off and running. So you, you cue at the shoulder, you ask for the knee, the horse lifts his knee, and you can begin to have him lift higher and higher into your waiting hand, click and treat, and if his knee is coming up higher, his foot is coming up higher. So then you, you cue at the shoulder, you get the, the knee coming to your hand, and then you do your, with your other hand, moves down and touches the horse's foot. So again, it's, it's uh, pure body part targeting. And then you expand that out until the horse is looking for your hand. So now he's finding your hand, he's resting his foot in, his hand, in your hand, and then you can gradually expand that so that you can hold the, hand, the foot, you can tap the foot, you can start to clean the foot, but it's taught out of body part targeting. And it's mm-hmm. a very different way from the way that most horses will have been asked to pick up their feet. And then you get these really fun, because it's so easy to fade the cues, so you start to move your hands towards the horse's shoulder and he's already picking up his foot. So mm-hmm. you've got leg, fl- leg flexions. And the leg flexions, whether you want them for cleaning, whether you want it for the gymnastic benefit. So the leg flexions are so good for helping horses to find their balance, helping a young horse to find his balance, helping a, a, a senior horse to maintain his balance and maintain his, uh, the health of his joints as he moves into his senior years. Those leg flexions are just incredibly, incredibly useful. So you're, you're, you're teaching the leg lifts in a, in a different process. And, and that brings me to the other thing that I wanted to share with you uh, that happened this weekend. So I was, was teaching a, lo- a group that's local to me, and we, we always take a break over the winter for obvious reasons, because it's just too cold, and particularly with when, we, when the coronavirus hit, because we couldn't go all of us into the uh, small little tack room and warm up. So, so we were taking a break over the winter. So this past weekend, we had our, our first get-together of the season. And the first horse that we worked, she wanted, the owner wanted to work on the exercise that I really like against the wall. But as I was watching her horse go, it looked like he might be a little bit lame. So we decided that we would not work him, but that I would work with her on the rope handling skills. We let him go back and we did the, the human horse rope handling. And, and that means that one person is holding the halter and another person can slide down the lead rope. And you get, if you're the handler, you can get verbal feedback from the person who's holding the halter. And the person who's holding the halter gets to experience what it feels like to the horse. So we were going through this particular exercise. And the handler, when she was showing me what she was doing, she was staying on the lead and she would slide up the lead wanting the horse to back up and her hand went towards what would be the horse's chest and she she both had a pull and she stayed too long so she's basically pushing the horse into backing 
And so we were dissecting this particular uh, handling detail. And I took the lead and I was, we had another one of the participants was holding the halter. And I slid up the lead and was demonstrating what I had just seen. So I'm modeling what mm. we had just seen so that we could look at that detail. So I slid up the lead and pushed the person into backing, released, and slid up again and pushed. And when I started to slide up the third time, I couldn't slide all the way up because she's already backing. But the interesting right. thing is it was so clear that she wasn't backing because she knew the right answer and she was full of joyful anticipation. Oh, I'm going to get a goodie. It was clear that she was backing as, as an avoidance behavior. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was so striking how quickly that avoidance behavior becomes established, mm. how real it is. I mean, we're just doing little, you know, rope handling demo details, but two, and I'm not shoving her off her feet. I'm sliding up the lead and, and just, and moving the snap in such a way that my hand, I'm not going into the shaping on a point of contact. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going into actively, There are more grams in your fingers than that. Yeah, and, and, and just the orientation of it, mm. and I'm not waiting for her to respond. I'm going into motion before she's responding, so she gets oh, yeah. pushed. Okay. And how quickly, how quickly that became, how quickly we saw the avoidance behavior mm. emerge. And then the contrast was to say, well, let me slide up the lead rope and make sure that when I slide up the lead rope, in this case, I'm going to go all the way to the snap, but my hand is going to stay soft on that snap, and I'm going to stay at neutral. So I'm going to go to that shaping on a point of contact, point of neutral. And then from not from my hand, but from, so the more, the more proximal to the snap, the closer to the snap I initiate the request, the more it will feel like a push. So I want to think, how far away can I be in my body? Meaning, you know, if I just breathe, uh, if I'm soft and I, and I breathe, up through my arms, she will feel that, and she can back up. And how quickly, with the shaping on a point of contact, all of that avoidance behavior just vanished, mm. went away. It's the same tool, you know, it's the same lead rope, it's the same halter, it's the same snap. But there's been, there's been an there have been important changes in the environment. First of all, you announced it. So before you even started it, you said, look, now something's going to be different. So there was already a change there. Mm -hmm. And then the way you performed it. 
Right. It's not that I announced it. It's the way that it was performed. And well, I, think, I think it's both, because if you had said nothing, it might have taken a little longer for her to catch on to the fact that... Yeah, but oh, I'm not sure. I would have to go back and look. So I'm not sure when I shifted that mm -hmm. I actually said, okay, now I'm going to do it differently. Mm -hmm. You would have to go back and look and, and see. But what is... It, it, is, it is... What I found so fascinating was how quickly... First of all, how quickly you could establish an avoidance behavior. And then mm -hmm. how quickly, using a different technique, you could, uh, you could have a behavior that, was, that had no avoidance in it. But yeah. she was backing. In, in, and, of course, the change in what was also fascinating was when she was, when it was sliding up with the push, you could see it and hear it in the way she moved. And when I slid up on a point of contact, she could, she could move in balance. She could move lightly. And I, I, just, I just find it fascinating in that, you know, it, it really speaks to it's not the tool. Mm -hmm. So, so many people get, you know, mm. it's like, oh, uh, you know, I want to be, I want to use positive reinforcement, so I don't want to use a lead rope. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's not the lead rope. It's how it's used. Yeah, but, you know, because when we say change the environment, people don't think of themselves as being part of that environment. Yes. But the handler is part of the environment. So yes. if you change the way the handler is doing things, that's a big change in the environment. Yes. You don't need to change necessarily. You could, if you wanted to make it maybe even a bigger change, you, you change some kind, you know, you do a different tool. But I mean, the handler is a big, big change in the environment. Yeah. What else do you need? Yeah. And, yeah. and because, of, because I've been studying the rope handling, I can go back and forth smoothly between example, non-example. This is mm -hmm. non-example. This is this is the example. Here's the experience of what it's like if I'm tight in my shoulders. Here's the experience of what it's like if I'm soft in my shoulders. Oh, look, it's a huge difference. So we can see using the same person, and here's here's condition A, here's condition B. Mm -hmm. When I go down the lead rope in this condition, oh, look, you stagger back, and I see avoidance behavior. When I slide down the lead rope, going to a point of contact, shaping on a point of contact, waiting for you to move rather than my pushing you into the movement, then we see that her move, her balance changes, her, the footfalls change. You can hear it. You can see it. And the emotionality is completely different. Mm -hmm. And I, I just think that's, it, it was just a very striking and profound, profound difference. Mm. And it matters because, you know, we do need to put lead ropes on our horses. Mm. You know, there, there are lots of times when we can work at liberty. Uh, we're in environments where it's completely safe. But these days, you know, we know so many people who are in fire zones. You know, mm. their horses That's are go going to be evacuated or they're in uh, hurricane alley or actually those tornadoes that you're in tornado alley but you know you're in weather patterns where you might have to evacuate 
it's it would be a very rare life where there would be no lead rope. Yeah, yeah. For a horse. Yeah, we put lead ropes on our horses. And so it's always a matter. It's not, do we use lead ropes? It's how do we teach them how to respond to the lead rope? You know, this has been one of the conversations that I've had with a couple people in the online course because they've, they've been in the horse world for 30, 40 years. And so, of course, they were taught how to use escalating pressure. That's what you were taught. That's what you knew. That's what you learned. And they, uh, they want to use positive reinforcement. And they're struggling with, you know, how do, how do the pieces of the puzzle fit together? You know, I, I want to use positive reinforcement, but there are times when I need to use pressure. It's like, you can put a lead rope, a halter and a lead rope on a horse. You can slide up a lead rope to a point of contact and wait for the horse to respond to you. And that's different from sliding up a lead rope and then going past that point of contact into the escalating pressure. You know, it's do you do you break the training down into smaller steps or do you get louder? And the choice that we are both making is break it down into smaller steps. Yeah, and remember that you are part of the horse's environment. So, you know, it it used to be people would say when it doesn't work, change what you do. Yeah. You've heard that a lot before. It wasn't as fancy maybe as, you know, change the stimulus conditions, but it was the same that it reminded people that the handler is part of the environment. So, yeah, changing the environment can be so many things, you know, we talked before about the weather and the seasons, and it can be objects that you change, a new distraction that you bring in, but it can also be change what you're doing. Yes, yes. Because you're part of the environment and it yep. makes a whole difference. So, and we just said before, you know, for the horse, you just change one thing and it changes everything. It's a different situation. So in a way, it gives hope for people to know they can still use the same arena, the same tools, but if they change what they do, it's a, it may be enough of a change for them to move forward. Yeah, yeah. It, it allows them to step into this amazing world of positive reinforcement and to succeed, and that they can bring many of the tools and many of the skills that they learned previously, you know, prior to stumbling across positive reinforcement. But what will change is this, I think, being guided by the underlying principles. You know, that whole circling back to where we started in this conversation with, with spring in the maple syrup buckets. It's that whole train where you can, not where you can't trained in environments where you, you get the emotional quality that you are looking for in the behavior. Safety always comes first. You let, there's always another way to train every behavior. You know, all of those principles guide us. Yeah, and remember to celebrate progress and little successes because yes. sometimes if we want to wait for everything to be perfect, well, we may not move along really we'll right. just be paralyzed so yeah maybe you have a crossover maybe there is emotional baggage but 
maybe not everything is perfect, but you can still cut a nail. Right, right. And, and you can still ride, you know, you can get on and ride on a day that it's calm and quiet. And tomorrow you can get on and ride on the day that it's calm and 10 degrees cooler. And it's still okay. And so you make progress. You expand the stimulus conditions. You expand your repertoire so that you can slide beautifully from a no into a yes. And you celebrate, as you say, you celebrate the successes. And they, and they definitely grow. That's a great place to end the conversation. Celebrate the yeses. Celebrate the successes. So we'll end there. This is a bittersweet episode. Shortly after we recorded this episode, Dominique lost her beautiful canal to the ravages of old age. I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast understands what it is to lose a beloved animal friend. They share our lives and they are part of our hearts. That doesn't change even when they are no longer present. Canal brought Dominique to positive reinforcement teaching. She was both a friend and a teacher. And I know, Dominique, that you miss her very much. Thank you for sharing her stories and for letting her be our teacher as well.